Morning. How are y'all? Pretty good? Good? All right. Well, good. It is uh, good to be here with you all this morning. I'm glad that we're here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we're going to jump uh, right in. We'll be in John chapter 9 today. We will actually be jumping kind of back and forth a little bit, several different texts. And so um, you can start there. We'll kind of move around as the day goes on. But uh, John chapter 9 is where we will start. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third seat somewhere around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, then please take and keep that Bible. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word. We want you to be able to read it during the week. And so please feel free to take and keep that one. You can also follow along on your smartphone uh, if you would like to do that. Um, so if you go underneath the version app, or some people call it the Bible app, underneath the, the tab section, there's a section called live. Click on that, type in the well Austin, you'll be able to follow along on your smartphone. There'll be notes, uh, scripture, uh, even places to write prayer requests, stuff like that. If you don't have the app, you can actually just take that link, put it right into your web browser, and you'll be able to follow along that way uh, if you would like to follow along like that. Um, <clears throat> I am both uh, excited and terrified about the message this morning. Um, excited because of what I see in Scripture, okay? I think that Scripture is fairly clear on this topic, and uh, it's a very, very important topic, but afraid because it's actually hard to communicate this idea to most Western Christians. I mean, Western American, Western Europe, kind of Western thinking, okay? Now, the sermon we're about to preach is one that would be unbelievably elementary in uh, Eastern context. So, China or the Middle East or places that are more uh, ready and see part of the gospel uh, as actually suffering for the sake of Christ, they'd be ready to hear this. Matter of fact, they get saved into this idea. But in a Western concept, it's actually really hard for us. And so I'm a little bit afraid because it's hard to communicate um, something that is very foreign to most of the way that we've been trained to think about the gospel and God and Christianity. And so my prayer is that God would really do a work on all of our hearts to help us see the beauty in suffering, okay? And so I need to ask you a favor up front, all right? I need you to stay with me through the whole sermon, all right? I know it's hard. Most people's attention spans are like 32 seconds at best, right? It's like a Vine video at best, all right? But um, try to stay with me, okay? Uh, because I'm going to be arguing for something that will probably sound a little bit radical in the beginning. It'll probably sound like something that we're not very used to, but I hope by the end of the sermon, God will do reasoning in our own hearts and we'll see the glory of God in suffering, okay? <clears throat> And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to read the first few verses of John chapter 9, <clears throat> and then we're going to jump around a little bit and try to help answer the question the disciples ask of Jesus. So Jesus is about to state something. The disciples ask a question. Jesus will say a comment that's actually going to be a hard comment for us to receive. And I want to jump around scripture a little bit, try to get a baseline for what God's doing there. And then we're going to come back to John 9 and look at the man that was born blind and see what we learned through the rest of scripture played out into his life. Does that make sense? If not, just stay with me. You'll follow along. All right, here we go. John chapter nine. All right, that's where we left off last week. We're going to pick up and we're going to pick it up there in verse one. <clears throat> Excuse me. John chapter nine, verse one. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, please don't remove yourself from this story. Okay, please don't remove yourself from the story. Jesus and his disciples are walking down the street and they see a man that's blind from birth and they ask a pretty heartless question right in front of that man. 
right? Like if you think about the question, like imagine that you're born blind or there's something wrong with you, right? Like maybe you're really, really short. And the disciples are like, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born this short, you know? And you're like, man, I'm offended by that. Like that's something that, okay, the man is born blind. They're literally standing right in front of him and talking about him. How do we know that? Because Jesus turns and says something to the blind man in a couple of verses later. So he can hear this conversation going on. And the disciples ask, <clears throat> a pretty heartless question. They have no compassion here. And so listen to me very clearly, okay? Many of us, Christians particularly, are like the disciples when it comes to our idea of suffering. Many of us are just like the disciples, okay? We as Christians frequently do not approach suffering in a very compassionate way, particularly when we are void of it or when we don't encounter it as often as we would think, okay? We instead philosophize about suffering or we debate about suffering like the disciples do rather than showing compassion, which is what Jesus is about to do, not realizing that there are real emotions within the people that are hurting. You may say, well, I don't do that. Well, think about it. When you see someone that's very, very poor, okay? Do you think it's a systemic issue? Do you think it's their parents' fault? Do you think, well, if they just worked a little bit harder, they wouldn't be so dang poor? You're philosophizing, you're debating, rather than having compassion, rather than getting your hands in, digging in and trying to help out in that area, you're void of their suffering. You begin to think about them in negative ways, right? Maybe you see someone that is addicted to something or you see some, and then you begin to philosophize or debate or think about and you remove yourself from the situation rather than diving in and help and we philosophize about that. And so Christians, that's called pharisaicalism, okay? We are above them all of a sudden as if God didn't redeem us as well or play us the hand that he dealt us to be able to allow us into the situation that we're in that may be a little bit better off than somebody else's situation, you think you're better than because of that, right? That's what the Pharisees would do. That's called legalism. You think that your works are creating your righteousness and they're not, okay? And so please listen to me. Ask for Jesus to give you a little bit of compassion, even during this sermon, okay? Ask for Jesus to give you a little bit of compassion instead of philosophizing and debating, go minister to the people who are in need. Okay, it's not just physical sickness, although that happens too. It's not just mental sickness or disability, although that happens too, but it covers a wide range of things, right? And we can so often philosophize just like the disciples did. And so don't remove yourself from the story because you're not Jesus in the story, all right? Most of us don't respond like Jesus did. Most of us respond like the disciples do. And so uh, don't think about their struggle. Try to have compassion, right? Now, Jesus, look at his response. He's actually about to be both helpful to the blind man and very gracious and compassionate toward the disciples, right? Because they would have asked that question right in front of him. And I was Jesus, I would have been like, you dumb fools. Like, don't ask this right in front of him, right? That's why I'm not Jesus, okay? Um, and the Bible would be a little more ghetto if I was Jesus, right? But like, no, he didn't say that, right? He doesn't kind of blaze them. He doesn't say, what are you thinking? That's a stupid question. Or that's a dumb thought. Or how could you be so heartless, Instead, he actually shows grace and compassion both to the blind man and we'll see him heal the blind man and see that blind man walk into redemption later, but also to the disciples. He answers their question actually. Oftentimes Jesus is asked a question and then they don't answer it directly. He kind of answers it around the bush, but he answers it directly in this one, right? And read verse three, what does it say again? <clears throat> Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus answers their question. And what did Jesus say? Okay, here's where the sermon gets a little bit hard. The man was born blind for what? Why was the man born blind? 
Y'all can read. Come on. Get a little bit talkative, all right? <laughs> right? For what? That the works of God may be displayed in him, or to shorten it for the glory of God. The man was born blind for God's glory. Do you hear that? Okay, and so I'm gonna ask you a question right up front because God clearly allowed, or can we take it a step further, even caused this man to be blind so that he would receive glory from this man's blindness. Now, it's really easy to remove ourselves from the story, but what if you were the man that for 30, 40, 50, 60 years was blind and then you heard Jesus say, oh, that was for God's glory. Would that be easy to receive? right? That's a hard thing to say for Jesus, or Jesus to say, right? And so I'm going to ask you a question up front that I hope you will answer a little bit honestly, because so often we can answer in Christian terms, but our hearts don't actually fully believe that. Are you willing to suffer that the glory of God would be exposed in you? Are you willing? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Are you willing to suffer that the glory of God might be exposed in you? Think about that. Your off the top answer is probably yes. Okay, that's probably your off the top answer, but I want you to really ask yourself this, okay? Are you willing to let the Lord take away your three-year-old son or daughter for his glory? Right? Are you willing to never get married for the Lord to give you singleness your whole life and give you a desire for marriage? You want marriage, but he will not give you marriage. Are you willing to do that your whole life for God's glory? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to not get the job that you want or to be rejected from a job or to be rejected for God's glory, okay? Are you willing to suffer with sickness or brokenness or you are broke or whatever it may be for the glory to God? Are you willing to suffer so that the works of God might be displayed in you? That's a hard question when you really begin to ponder and think about it right? Jesus isn't uh, removing, he's jumping right into a really difficult issue, which is why it's hard for most Western Christians to even understand this passage. We highlight the man born blind, but we don't even think about the suffering that was caused because of it, right? And so does this sound radical to some of you? It should, because following Christ is a little bit radical, right? We have tried to normalize it, but Jesus never allowed that. He said, no, look, this is about me, my glory, right? And Jesus highlights this over and over and over again. Every single person in here is going to suffer at some point. Some of you are actually going to suffer even more so than others are going to suffer. And for the Christians, suffering actually often comes more violently for you than even for others. And so how do we deal with that, right? What are we supposed to do with that? I want you to see why we suffer, okay? And then how God is good in our suffering. That's what we're going to be covering the rest of the day, all right? Why do we suffer? And then how is God good in our suffering? How is God glorified? How can God be made much of? Why can we even rejoice in this as scripture calls us to do? That's what we're going to be covering today, okay? And so I hope that by the end of the sermon, we at least begin to scratch the surface of that, where you see the beauty of suffering, because a lot of us need a better theology of suffering, a better theology of suffering, okay? Go to 2 Corinthians with me. We're gonna come back in John in a little bit, but 2 Corinthians, um, we're gonna camp out a little bit there, chapter one. While you're turning there, I want you to help realize why your uh, likely uh, unbiblical view of suffering needs a paradigm shift, okay? I wanna help us understand that today. And so there's a reason why we get confused or mad at God when bad things happen to us. There's a reason, okay? And it shows that we don't have a good understanding fully of suffering, 
right? Oftentimes what it is, is we use God as a means to put ourselves on the throne, okay? We like to be God, and so we think nothing bad should happen to us because we're God. That's what we often think. And then when God removes us off of that throne and bad things do happen to us, we get a little bit mad at God. We need a paradigm shift. He's God. And you'll see why this is unbelievably beautiful in a moment, because the man, God, who deserved no suffering, suffered more than any man will ever suffer. Therefore, you should be able to receive suffering because of what Christ did. That's later in the sermon, though. I'm already getting excited about the gospel, right? But we don't have a biblical perspective on suffering, right? Most Christians in the Bible rejoiced in their suffering, and listen to me, they actually purposely chose suffering. A lot of times you hear, well, don't go into suffering. No, Paul literally said he chooses suffering. I will go into suffering that others may see the glory of God in it. And so there's a huge difference between the way the Bible views suffering and the way that we frequently view suffering and when it comes into most of us. Most of us think it's strange when we suffer or get mad at God. And this shows we don't have a good category for suffering. We don't know where to put it. It doesn't work within our Christian theology. And so I hope to expand our theology about God a little bit so that we have a category for suffering because it's a huge part of our lives as we live in a sinful and a broken world. Suffering comes. God just happens to use it for his glory, okay? Matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, you don't have to turn it, I think it's on the screen, but it says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Fiery, that's a really interesting word to use there, right? Does fiery sound like fun? No, he tried to use an adjective to even expound a trial already. Trial is already a hard word. He threw an adjective, a fiery trial, right? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Why? As though something strange were happening to you. It's not a strange thing when fiery trials come. Peter says, don't be surprised. That's not strange. That's normal, right? For the Christian, that's how God is glorified. And so that's all I want to do today. I want to set a biblical understanding of suffering. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three through seven. It says, blessed be the God, our, and I'm sorry, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all, all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Point number one, God allows for suffering for others' salvation. God allows for your suffering today for other people's salvation. Okay, God literally allows people to suffer so that other people will get saved, including the sufferer. Sometimes God allows you, the sufferer, to suffer so that you would come to know who Jesus is. You'll see this more played out in a second with the man born blind in John 9. But God allows people to suffer so that others would get saved. Okay, I have a great friend. Um, his name is Sebastian married to his wife, Kaylee, and Sebastian was actually my roommate uh, about five years ago. We worked together uh, at the same church and. Sebastian's just a good dude. He's a really fun dude to be around. Very playful, energetic, very funny and outgoing. And his wife uh, and him got pregnant and had been wanting to get pregnant for a while. And then boom, sure enough, God gave them a baby, right? And everything was great for a while until they went in for the about 20-week checkup. And when they went in, the doctor said, you know, there's something wrong with this baby and we can't tell what it is. 
And so they came back the next week and they said, well, we think it may be this. They came back the next week and it was something different. And they kept kind of going in and out like, oh, it's not that serious to, no, the baby's not even going to make it out of the womb. And so there's this huge spectrum, right? Baby will be fine, baby won't be fine. Then they say, well, the baby will actually be born with Down syndrome. And so that must be what we were detecting. Then they said, no, 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 the baby's actually fine. And literally, week in and week out, they kept changing what they thought about the baby. Finally, they said, yes, uh, she will have Down syndrome and she'll actually be born blind. And so if you want to think about boarding the baby, then now's a good time to do that. Well, Sebastian's a strong believer and says, no, we believe that God is good. He's doing this for a reason. We don't know why the baby's fine. We're going to keep the baby, right? Then around 30-something weeks, they were like, you know what? Actually, she'll be fairly fine. Maybe she'll have a little bit of, of a mental uh, uh, you know, uh, handicap, just a little bit, but she'll actually be okay. And then as the birth began to approach, it went downhill very quickly again. They didn't even know if the baby would come out alive, right? Annabelle, the child, did come out alive, okay? And they rejoiced in it, but there was tons and tons of problems. So many problems that Sebastian and Kaylee literally spent the first six weeks of Annabelle's life at the hospital, right? They did not go home. They slept at the hospital. They ate up there. They were with her the whole time. She was sure enough born blind and she was born with Down syndrome, right? And so there was uh, all these difficulties with the baby. There were other health issues and in and out of testing and shots and, you know, experiments, even trying to figure out how do we help uh, uh, save this baby, well, God, uh, they felt like was good and sure enough allowed Sebastian and Kaylee to go home with the baby. So they actually went home with the baby and they got out of the hospital and were rejoicing in that. Two days after being home, they had to rush back into the hospital because there was more complications. A few days later, Annabelle died. Okay. Now, very serious, right? All of a sudden, what is God doing in this? Why did God even allow that to happen? You know. So I'm at Annabelle's funeral and I'm talking to Sebastian. And we're, we're kind of hanging out a little bit. And he told me a story about this. And he said, you know, uh, Jake, who is Kaylee, his wife, that's uh, her brother. So he said, Jake uh, has a son named Camp. So Sebastian's nephew. And he said that Camp was kind of watching this whole process unfold. And they would go into the hospital to visit baby Annabelle. And Camp would ask all these questions. And, you know, what's going on? How come she can't see? How come she's sick like this? And kept pondering, kept pondering. And so then the day they got the news that Annabelle died, Jake went in to tell Camp, and Camp said, well, well what's going to happen? And Jake said, well, Annabelle is going to be in heaven, and Sebastian and Kaylee will get to see her one day, and she'll be able to see, and she'll be fine, you know? And Camp said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, I want to go to heaven when I die. And Camp ended up getting saved. And I was talking to Sebastian, and he said, through my child's death, my nephew got saved. That sounds a lot like Jesus to me. And I cried, <laughs> like I'm about to right now, right? What a beautiful, beautiful story. What a beautiful story. Matter of fact, Sebastian has a bunch of tattoos of the incident. He's filled up with tattoos. He probably has like 40 on them. But um, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal is what this one says. And then on his other arm, look at this, John 9, 1 through 3. What we just read, right? That baby was born blind that the glory of God might be displayed in her. Camp is saved now. And Sebastian and Kaylee's faith got so much stronger through that. How beautiful of a story. As I was talking to Sebastian, he said, the pain is extremely deep, man. You don't understand. I said, you're right. I don't understand. He said, the pain is so deep. I can feel it. Every time I look into my wife's eyes and I see the painful tears shooting through her eyes, I get mad. I get confused. I get frustrated. But God is good. And I see his purposes unfolding. Listen to me. If you don't know God, that sentence sounds like an almost insane sentence to say. 
Sebastian drew deep into his relationship with Christ through this, and he believes that sentence. That's a true sentence in his mind, that God is good despite what's going on. Why? Somebody got saved through that, right? Somebody came to know who Jesus was through his daughter's death. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Paul says that people suffer for other people's salvation. Isn't that what Christ did for you? Didn't Christ suffer so that you would become saved? And then boom, we're little Christ. That's what Christian means. Well, then aren't we called to suffer so that maybe other people would get saved, right? And so if you're still trying to figure Christianity out, if you don't know if you're a Christian or you know that you're not a Christian, you, you know that you're not following Christ, this will be a hard statement to wrestle with, but that's how deeply we believe in Jesus. We believe that he is that good, right? Even uh, Christian, right? Even those who are barely in their faith, even those who haven't gone that deep into their love for Christ yet, would you be able to suffer if you knew that it led to other people's salvation? Why don't you ask yourself that? Would you be willing to suffer if you knew that it led to other people's salvation? And I bet that 99% of the Christians in the whole entire world would say, yes, I would be able to. Because when we think about not just this life, but eternity, when we think about the difference between heaven and hell, when we think about camp no longer, if he dies today, he will be in eternity in heaven with baby Annabelle. That gives us hope. Suffering produces hope that one day there will be no more suffering. Suffering is a beautiful thing because it can lead to other people's salvation. If God puts you through suffering so that somebody else would get saved, would you be willing to suffer? That someone would exit out of hell into glory? Listen, you don't have to wonder if suffering it leads to this. Look at what this text says. If you suffer, it is for other people's salvation, Paul says. That is part of the reason that we suffer, that other people would come to know who Jesus is. That is part of why you suffer on this earth as a Christian, so that other people would know Jesus. This is beautiful because that means your suffering doesn't not have a purpose. It has an eternal purpose. Your suffering isn't just for your pain. It's for somebody else's beauty and glory, right? Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that he endures everything for the sake of the elect. In other words, I endure all suffering. Paul even says later that he chooses that suffering so that people would come and know who Christ is. I endure everything for the sake of their life. God allows you to suffer so that other people may get saved. You may ask, well, isn't there another way? Isn't there another way? Like, can't God do that through good things? No, no, there isn't another way. There, 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 there isn't for some, and here's why, only in suffering can you see the true reward of heaven, right? Do you understand that? Only when things are the blackest, that's when the smallest bit of light is most beautiful, isn't it? When things are the darkest, when things are the most bleak, that's when the smallest bit of hope is the most beautiful. And so for a lot of people, only through suffering will they see glory. Only through pain will they see no more pain of eternity. Suffering for a lot of people is the only way they would come and know who Christ is. And so there's not another way for a lot of people, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, when does food taste best? When you're starving, right? Y'all know that, right? Maybe you're fasting for a while. Maybe you just accidentally skipped a couple of meals, okay? So like if you just ate a five-course meal and I offered you a really nice juicy filet mignon, would it taste good? It's a filet mignon. So yes, it would still taste a little bit good, right? But it wouldn't be as beautiful. It wouldn't be as savory. It wouldn't be as rich as if you had just been working outside all day long and I said, hey, you want this filet and you haven't eaten yet? It would taste dang near like heaven, right? It would taste so beautifully good. If you're a vegan, um, whatever's good for you, okay? I haven't learned that language yet. I haven't been in Austin 10 years, so I'm still learning, okay? But whatever's good for you, like, it tastes beautiful at that moment, right? It's when you're in most need, when you're in the most pain, that glory seems to be the most beautiful. 
So your suffering can lead to other people's salvation. Paul says that here, right? Why do you think so many people come to Christ at their lowest moment? Huh? Isn't that a lot of you in here? Didn't you come to Christ when that girl broke up with you and you felt so hopeless, when you lost that job, when you couldn't find that man, when you, whatever your suffering may have been. I'm thinking about literal people in here. Those, those, that's their stories, right? They came to Christ when they were broken, hurting, suffering, At the lowest moment, that's often when the Lord draws us. Remember, the sufferer, too, can be led to salvation through his suffering, right? And so God uses this. And when you suffer and others see you're still rejoicing in Christ, you have something that others don't have. Did you hear me? When you suffer and other people see you're still rejoicing in Christ, you have something that they don't have. You say, this earth is not my home. And I believe that. And it's hard, and it's hard for me to even reconcile that, but I realize there's a greater eternity that awaits me. This earth is not my home, right? There's a great story in John Piper's book, Desiring God. It's about a girl named Natasha. I wanted to read this. This is going to take a minute. But um, Natasha, uh, one of the most moving and incredible accounts of suffering, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, is found in Sergi's autobiography, The Persecutor. Sergi was commissioned by the Russian secret police to raid prayer gatherings and persecute believers with extraordinary brutality. But the afflictions of one believer changed his life. This is is Sergi's story. I saw Victor, one of my comrades, reach and grab for a young girl, Natasha, who was trying to escape into another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer, I thought in my head. Victor caught her and picked her up above his head and held her high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't, dear God, please help us, please. But God didn't help. It proved to me that God wasn't real. Victor threw her so hard that she hit the wall at the same height upon which she was thrown and then dropped to the floor, semi-conscious and moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I'll bet the idea of God went flying out of her head when she hit that wall. On a later raid, I was shocked to see Natasha again. I quickly surveyed the room and I saw a sight that I couldn't believe. There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was her. Only three nights before, she had been at the other meeting and had been viciously thrown across the room. It was the first time that I really gave a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I had first remembered. A very beautiful girl with long flowing blonde hair, large blue eyes and smooth skin. One of the most naturally beautiful girls I had ever seen. That enraged me. I pick her up and flung her on the table face down. The two of us stripped her clothes off until she was naked. One of my men held her down and I began to beat her again and again and again. My hands began to sting underneath the blows of her body. Her skin started to blister. I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off into my hand. She moaned and fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cries, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood began to run down her chin. At last she gave in and began sobbing. When I was so exhausted that I could barely raise my arm for even one more blow and her backside was as a mass of raw flesh, I pushed her off the table and she collapsed onto the floor. To my shock, I later encountered her at another prayer meeting, but this time something was different. There she was again, Natasha. Several of the guys saw her too. And Alex moved toward Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. And then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor jumped in between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on, the same man who threw her against the wall. 
Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. He shielded Natasha who was crying and cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her, nobody. For the first time in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering, yet here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and grab her and ask her, what is this? What is this that you have? I wanted to talk to her, but I looked and she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at our hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. The Lord later opened up my heart to the glorious news of Jesus Christ. As I reflect on Natasha, whom I've never seen, who I never saw again, I write finally to Natasha, whom I beat terribly and who was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say to you, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed, and I am a fellow believer and brother in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me, and I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, ever forget you, and I will see you in heaven one day where we will suffer no more, your brother in Christ. Suffering shows something that we don't, like, no, how do you reconcile that? As a young girl like that, suffering can lead to other people's salvation, okay? Christians will suffer. This is one of God's main tools to show that we don't value what's here on earth, that everything on this earth is passing away, and this will lead to other people's salvation. Because only a crazy person can make a statement like that, or God is real. There's no other option. The person's crazy, or God is real. And apparently they've experienced enough of God's realness where they can make that statement. This is beautiful. Point two, God allows suffering for other people's comfort, okay? So not just their salvation, but other people's comfort. Look at the text there again in 2 Corinthians. What does that text say, right? Paul uses the word comfort how many times? 10 times in five verses. Do you think suffering allows for other people's comfort? Right? Paul says it again and again. It's actually hard to read out loud because there's so many comforts thrown in there so many times. It's like it doesn't even make sense anymore. Right? God comforts, comforts those who need comfort. Right? He says it over and over and over again. Okay? And listen, I'm not giving this sermon to someone who is ignorant to suffering myself. Right? Uh, growing up, there was a lot of suffering in my life that led to different situations ultimately leading me toward Christ. But even recently, there's been a lot of suffering in my wife and I's life right? Back in September, uh, we actually had about $11,000 worth of expenses, okay? Our car broke, our oven broke, our toilet broke, like everything in our life broke, all right? And listen, the church isn't that big, so I know I'm finally financially supported by the church, but I ain't making that much money, y'all, okay? And so $11,000 is a lot of money to dish out in one month. It was kind of hard, right? And it was like, God, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, I'm trying to give more and get out of debt, and you're draining all my money away to get a van, Right? Now I'm a van dad. What is this? Right? 
people begin to say and do mean things toward me, okay, say things emotionally that was kind of stinging, right? Different emails, different conversations. You know how people can be sometimes. It's just hard when you love someone very deeply and then you call them out on their sin and they return it with violence towards you. It's hard sometimes not to take personally, right? That began to happen. And then Natalie and I had uh, the joy of becoming pregnant and then actually had a miscarriage back in October, late October. And um, I asked Natalie if I can even share this with y'all because of how much it hurt us, right? Um, I had never really experienced death before until that moment, right? It was hard because growing up, my mom's super young. She had me when she was 17. Her mom had her when she was 20. My granny had my dad when she was 21. Like my whole family is extremely young. Matter of fact, most people my age, my mom is almost the, or my grandparents are almost the same age as their parents, right? So there was no death in my life until that moment right? We rejoice at a baby. We begin to think about what does it look like to have another child? And then boom, it gets taken away early, right? And it's really, really hard at that moment to begin to wrestle with the idea of suffering and what God is doing through suffering, you know? Let me tell you what happened. I was talking and trying to process. I'm a verbal processor and I was talking to a few of the guys in my life. I asked Natalie, you know, how is she doing? And I said to her, she said to me, she said, you know, I see why so many people So many women have such a hard time with God during this season because it's extremely painful, but I'm glad I built my house on a solid rock and it won't be shaken. And the idea of being able to stand so firmly on Christ that suffering doesn't even affect anymore, right? Or it affects deeply, I should say, but it doesn't even shake the faith, I should say, anymore right? That I've built my house on Christ. I know that he's a good God. I can see all the things he's done in my past is what she said later. He keeps showing his faithfulness to me over and over and over again. Why would he stop now? Why would he stop now? He wouldn't. And as I was reading this passage and thinking about what God was doing, you know what made a whole lot of sense to me? The idea of suffering in this way in the way that we suffered, when I began to step back and think about what is God doing in our lives? What is God doing in the life of this church? It made a whole lot of sense to me, right? Do you know that one in about three women have a miscarriage in their life at some point? 30% of pregnancies is what the statistic is roughly, okay? One in three women. You know how young we are as a church? You know, there are eight people currently pregnant in our church, right? Good thing we got extra rooms and children's, right? (laughs) eight people currently pregnant. You know how many more people that will happen to? It makes a whole lot of sense that the lead pastor and his wife would go through and experience that first. Why? Because God comforted us. And do you know what we'll be able to do when they suffer? Comfort them. Isn't that what this text says? God comforts you with comfort so that you can comfort others when they are in affliction themselves. That makes a whole lot of sense to me that God would allow it to happen, allow us to go through that, that we may be able to comfort you guys when you suffer. That makes perfect sense. We're not planning on going anywhere. I'm not planning on replanting another church. This is the church I feel like God's called me to for my life. So unless he moves me up to India or something, all right, which I'd be like Jonah then, I'd still be trying to stay along, right? Pull me away, right? Unless that happens, we're planning on being here. That makes perfect sense to me then, why God would allow us to go through that, that we may be able to comfort the saints, God is good to me now. I don't see God as bad now. I see God as unbelievably good. Do you know why? Because that also means that you will need to suffer for my sake at some point. And I thank you in advance for that. 
Maybe for you, your suffering isn't a miscarriage. Maybe for you, your initial suffering, you're one of the first people in the well that has to go through the, 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 the horrors of cancer, right? But you fight through it and you wrestle through it and you go through it well so that the 20, 30, 100, 300 people that end up getting it later, you can then comfort them with the comfort that Christ has given you. It makes sense to me. You know why I don't have to suffer everything in the world? Because you all get to suffer for me. And I get to see that and experience that and see Christ through that. And you can comfort me when I even come close to that type of uh, suffering. It makes sense to me why God would bring us through that, right? During that time, um, God was doing a work in me that I couldn't even, it's hard to even explain. But I began to have such a deep love and a deep affection for you all. I felt like it was almost unhealthy for a moment. I'm not joking. I almost felt like it was unhealthy. I love you guys so much. And I literally told God over and over and over again, I'm willing to suffer if it's for their growth in Christ. Put me through it. I'm willing to suffer. Listen, that's not my own working. I don't do that, okay? Like that's not who I am. Tori does not think that way in the flesh. This is the Holy Spirit's work in my life, doing a new work in me, helping me to be a good shepherd, which is what he's called me to do. Working in me that I may love you all, right? That was God's work in that. I can totally see why God would use that. Is it painful? Yeah, it's definitely painful. Am I still confused, angered even at times about that? Yeah, for sure, right? But, that's the, but, but, but I see God in it. I have built my house on a solid rock. I have seen the beauty of Christ. I've seen it in my wife. I've seen our relationship grow deeper with God. God is so good through all of that right? God did such a good work through it in this whole season. I was even hesitant, honestly, to even share this because I know oftentimes what we do in suffering, we act like the disciples, right? And we don't know how to deal with it and we get really confused, okay? I knew that stating this would place a certain burden on my wife to act a certain way, right? To act, to put on a front, to try to put on a Christian smile. Listen, sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes there's a lot of strength in Christ and we go, man, I see God. He's good. Praise the Lord. Sometimes suffering brings a lot, a whole lot of pain, right? And I was hesitant, but listen, we need you guys. We need you guys. The elders need you guys. The other, Bob, Joey, the other people on staff, we need you guys and you all need us, right? Do you know that 84 times the word suffer is used in the New Testament? Most of them actually devoid of Christ. It actually talks about Christian suffering, not Christ suffering, 84 times. Do you know what that means? You're not alone in your suffering. You hear me? You're not alone in your suffering. In actuality, this is one of the reasons that God gives us the gift of the church so that we might be able to encourage one another and help one another in our times of suffering. Okay, please listen to this. It's important. Uh, Natalie actually, a few weeks later, was with a friend of hers, Aubrey Laws, and they were at the park and they were talking about it and stuff. And uh, they, were, they were talking about what God was doing through that. And uh, Aubrey began to just like weep with Natalie, like just began to weep. And Natalie hadn't been crying for a couple of weeks. She was kind of like understanding what God was doing. And then Natalie just began, or uh, Aubrey began to like weep in the middle of a park with a ton of kids and a ton of parents running around, right? And Natalie just began to like weep too. And they just sat at the park holding each other, like weeping, <laughs> you know? And all the kids are running around laughing, right? The parents are probably looking like, what the heck is going on, right? This is part of the reason why church and deep community in a church is so important because you have that, right? It's hard for me to understand as a guy. It's really easy for Aubrey to understand who had two kids and the third one on the way. It's easy, 
right? A lot easier at least than for me. And she could be there for my wife and cry and love on her and help her to mourn and give her what she needs, right? Church is meant to be a safe haven for those who are suffering. And this is beautiful. Church is meant to be a safe haven for those who are suffering. If you're suffering and you're afraid to come to church, that's Satan. Come, open up about your suffering and let us love on you through it. I'm not saying we'll be perfect, okay? Job opened up about his suffering and his friends were miserable, okay? And so that happens sometimes, all right? But I hope through sanctification, as we grow more in Christ, as we understand this idea of suffering, we're able to comfort each other better and better and better, right? Those outside the church often have nowhere to turn when they're suffering. They, uh, the world tells them, get over it. Get over your problems, right? It's not a big deal. Or they try to do some weird psychotherapy or whatever it may be. And we say, no, it's okay to mourn and to lament because sin is real and is present and it shows that earth is not our home. And it's hard sometimes, but we love you and we're going to run with you through this. Church is meant to be a safe haven. This is why I pleaded with y'all in the beginning to love each other, not be like Pharisees right? Don't be like Job's friends through this. Comfort and struggle. Be with the person who is suffering. The church is supposed to be a hospital or a clinic to those who are in need, right? Be that for each other. And so maybe a God allows us to go through one thing, but he's going to allow you to go through something else so that together collectively we may be comforted through each other. God is graciously good in this, and I hope it's sounding beautiful. I hope this is making sense, okay? Paul says it like this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Listen to this crazy statement. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Listen, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What? I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Wasn't Christ's affliction perfect? Okay, here's what John Piper says in Desiring God. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions is not known and trusted throughout the whole world. Most people have not seen Christ suffer, including us. These afflictions and what they mean are still hidden to most peoples. And God's intention is that the mystery be revealed to all the nations. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by the ministers of the word. And those ministers of the word complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. That's a pregnant statement right? Here's what we're saying fully. Ultimately, when I see you suffer for my sake, I actually am seeing a little bit of Jesus that I couldn't see without you. My friend, actually a good example, a good friend of mine named Nick, one of my best friends, best man at my wedding. Um, uh, there was, we would used to fast for each other and we would struggle with certain types of sin. And so there was one day that I stumbled in this sin and Nick actually fasted for me for four days, okay? No food, no, just water for four days, and I came home on like day two. I knew he was in class, so I came home and I'm eating. Now I'm the one that sinned, but Nick is the one that's fasting for me, okay? You, you picking up with that? So I come home, I know he's in class, except no, he's sick because he was fasting. And he was like laying in bed, like just threw up and was looking miserable. And I walked into the room with a plate of spaghetti and a breadstick. I still remember what I had in my hand. And I opened the door and I looked at Nick. And for the first time in my life, I thought, oh my goodness. Nick is suffering just a little bit physically for my sin. Christ drank the wrath of God that I would not have to suffer eternally in hell. And for the first time, I saw what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Does that make sense? I saw Jesus tangibly in Nick. I saw him suffering for my sake so that I could be comforted or overcome this sin of mine. And you know what? That day, I put that sin to death and I've barely struggled with it since then. 
makes literal the suffering, maybe not the fasting, but me seeing him go through that, help me overcome this, right? Jim Elliott, famous story. He goes in to a mission, or the missionary, or he goes to be a missionary in a, in a place where they don't know Jesus. He comes in and he gets eaten alive by these men and tossed down the river. A few years later, his brother comes back and the tribe thought that it was Jim Elliott raised from the dead because they look so much alike. That's pretty funny, huh? And he said, no, I'm, I'm his brother actually, but there is somebody who can raise from the dead. And he told them the gospel and that whole village got saved. And after he learned the language more and more, they began to realize that the reason they got saved was because if he was willing to go through the same suffering his own brother went through just to share the gospel, it must be real, right? People see Christ when you suffer for them. What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That's what this passage is saying, okay? We gotta move on. Point three, God allows suffering for your sanctification, so the first two are others focused. The last one is you focus, okay? For your own growth in Christ, for you becoming more like Jesus. Look at that Second Corinthians passage again. We read one through three. Now look at this, read verses eight and nine. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. Now remember who's writing this, the apostle Paul, okay? The man who we often think of like flying with a cape behind his back, superhero apostle Paul, right? We don't want you to be ignorant of how we suffered, brothers. Um, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired life itself. We no longer wanted to live because of how painful the suffering was that we were going through, Paul says. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You think Paul understands the gospel and his suffering? I see what God is doing in here. I see what God is doing in here. Throughout this whole book, he talks about suffering. These light momentary afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed. Paul said that God put a thorn in his flesh and he prayed that God would remove it. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. So Paul said, I will boast in my weakness. I'm suffering and I will boast in that. I will say, yes, that's a good thing because it shows the strength of God and the grace of Jesus and how it's sufficient in my life. I rejoice in that. Paul saw this was for his sanctification right? That his suffering is for his sanctification. God's universal purpose for all Christians is to make them more like his son, Jesus. That's his universal will for Christians to stop relying on themselves and to lean into Jesus. And isn't it true that you tend to lean into Jesus most when you need him most? Is that true in your own life? That's when you lean into Jesus most? What brings this out more than suffering? And it does anything, right? What drives you into prayer more than suffering, more than needing, more than maybe you need a job, maybe you really want something, maybe you're uh, struggling with a, a physical illness of some sort and it drives you to Christ. It makes you not rely on yourselves. It makes you stop being God in your life and put the true God in your life, right? Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge said this, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back at the experiences that at the time seemed especially docilating and painful with a a particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction, not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by some means of drug or other medical mumbo jumbo, the result would, uh, would not be to make life delectable, but uh, to make it too banal or trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross of Christ signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me 
uh, inexorably uh, uh, to Christ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, it's called me above everything else. It's called me most deeply to Christ, right? He says, look, suffering is what's called that. Sam Rutherford said, when I was cast into the cellars of affliction, there I remembered that the great king always kept his wine there. I love that. When I was thrown into the cellars of affliction, I remember that's where the best wine is. Charles Spurgeon said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. When you dive deep into suffering, that's where the the most beautiful pearls are found. I know in my own life, I can attest to all these truths right? Now, some of you would say, that sounds like foolishness. Why would you desire or walk into suffering or even rejoice in it? It is foolish. Paul actually says that in 1 Corinthians. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The message of what? The cross. Suffering, picking up your cross and dying for Christ is foolishness unless eternity is real, unless heaven is real. It's not normal thinking. It's the one who's began to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's the thinking that that is, right? Look at James 1 with me real quick. James chapter one. I'm almost done here. Stay with me. James chapter one, verses two through four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, it does not say rejoice at your suffering. That's not what that text is. Rejoice at your suffering. No, that's weird, okay? That's like, that's sick thinking. That's not what scripture points out, okay? I hate suffering and you should too. You should hate suffering, Okay, we're not fatalistic here as Christians. That's not what's going on here. I'm not happy that we had to go through a miscarriage. I'm not happy that you have to get sick. I'm not happy about the things that are going on in this world. That's the result of sin and the fall. However, we rejoice in suffering because we see what God does through the suffering, right? If anything, suffering should provoke more anger and rage than almost anything else in your life. Suffering should provoke it. If it doesn't, then there's something wrong with your heart. You shut off your emotion. Suffering should produce anger. I hate death. I hate death, right? That's why I'll do anything in my my capabilities to help other people not experience it. That's why I was so excited about the sermon last week. Because one day I'll get to meet my baby boy or girl in heaven where death will be experienced no more. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm not arrogant in that statement. I'm confident in Christ's resurrection. I will get to see her one day, see him one day, where there will be no more suffering. You should hate death and do anything in your power to overcome that, right? And, and this is what helps you want other people to experience this too, to, to not go through it. So we don't rejoice at suffering. We rejoice in suffering because we're able to see God through the suffering, okay? The Bible is not unrealistic, by the way. The Bible is not unrealistic, okay? It doesn't put unrealistic expectations on you. It doesn't tell you that suffering is great. Suffering sucks because it is a product of the fall. Okay, but listen to me very closely. Christ already suffered everything so that one day you will not have to suffer anymore. That's the beauty of the gospel. Did you hear me? Christ already suffered everything. You know that your sins were supposed to send you into an eternity in hell. Yet somehow in three days, Christ drank up all of that wrath for not just yours, but mine's and everybody else's. Christ already suffered everything so that you wouldn't have to suffer at all one day in heaven where there will be no more tears. Amen? There will be no more suffering. We will be in eternity with our Savior forever. How beautiful of a message is that? Suffering is momentary only for those who believe in Jesus because he already suffered for you. 
So when you suffer, that can do nothing but point you back to Jesus who already went through all of it for you. So the little things that we go through, the 80, 70, 60, 50, 20 years we have left here on this earth are but a blink of an eye compared to what eternity will be, where there will be no more suffering. You should hate suffering, but it should point you to the gospel and it should point you to eternity, right? Suffering should draw you toward Christ. It should make you think about who he is. So the reason you hate suffering is holy. I mean that. It's holy, okay? It's because you long for something better. That's why you hate suffering, because you long for something better. Your heart knows that this is not supposed to be like this, okay? Your heart knows this is not our home. So if you don't know Jesus in here today, I would actually ask you when you suffer, don't shut off your soul's voice. Your soul will be screaming out to you, this isn't home. There's something more than this. You're not supposed to suffer, and that's true, because if you the, 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 the garden, there was supposed to be no suffering. We sinned, we brought suffering into the world, but Jesus is good enough to come down, suffer for us so that one day you won't have to suffer anymore. Suffering does not have to be your eternal uh, destination. You can have life forever. Death can be overcome, amen? You don't have to suffer. Christ already did it for you. And so the small suffering should do nothing but remind you of the beauty that's gonna be revealed in Christ. It's your sanctification, is what I'm trying to say. Your understanding of the gospel, your understanding of who Jesus is, right? And so I beg you, if you don't know Jesus, think about that. What does suffering do? It's pointless unless there's something more outside of that, right? So even Christ had to suffer. I wanna really quickly, I'm, I'm actually not gonna go back into John. I, I wasted my time on all this other stuff, all right? <laughs> I'm not gonna go back into John. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. I wanna encourage you to read that story sometime this week. I know we're doing the Bible in a year. Maybe read it on Saturday on one of your days off, right? Read it, look at those three principles, and I want you to go through how is it that this carried out in, in this man's life? How did suffering, being blind, lead to his salvation? It's pretty obvious because it tells you. How did it lead to his comfort and other people's salvation? And how did it lead to his sanctification? Because after he became unblind, Line, the first thing he had to go through was a massive trial. The Pharisees were laughing at him. They were calling him fools. They said, you were born in utter sin. They call him what's equivalent to an imbecile. And then they kick him out the temple so you can never worship here again. And then Jesus comes and finds him. And you heard Joel read it. He says, do you believe in the son of man? He says, who is he? He says, me. And he bowed down and worshiped him. So he had to suffer even coming to Christ, right? You'll see it played out in the story. So instead of going back, I wanna give you four really quick ways of how you can rejoice in your suffering. As I want you to take home with you, okay? Maybe you can even talk about it in your community groups or something. Four ways of why you can rejoice in your suffering. I don't have time to expound on these, all right? But one, rejoice in suffering because your reward is great. Luke 6, 22 to 23 tells us that. I'm not gonna go through and read that. You can read that later. Rejoice in your suffering because your reward is great. When you think about the glories of heaven, the suffering will seem small in comparison, okay? Number two, rejoice in your suffering because it deepens your hope. I really wish I can go into this Romans verse because it's great, but suffering makes you hope for heaven. Suffering makes you realize that Jesus is good and that he's real and it sanctifies you and it shows you that your salvation is true. Did you hear me? Suffering shows you your salvation is true. If you can stand with Christ through suffering, you know you have a true faith. If it kicks you, if it rocks you, if your house breaks down, you haven't built your house on a solid rock. Suffering shows you hope, okay? Number three, rejoice in suffering because it leads to glory. 
okay? Christians will suffer. And if you're suffering for Christ, not because of sin, Peter even says that in that Peter passage there, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. If you're suffering because of sin, that's a whole different issue. We'll, t- we'll touch on that another day, all right? But if you're suffering just because, because you're a Christian, because that's the, the hand that God has dealt you, then it will lead to your glory, literally your glory. It's proof that you will be in glory with God one day and then rejoice in suffering so that others can see Christ. We already talked about that at length right? We, th- this is the one that people can come to know Jesus because of your suffering, okay? And so Christ suffered for you so you would not have to suffer eternally. And so this momentary suffering only reveals the glory of God. The blind man was healed on earth, but so much more he was healed eternally. If he was healed from his blindness on earth and that was it, that means nothing. He saw for a few years and then died. But he'll get to see Christ forever. He'll be unblinded in heaven forever, right? And the Pharisees who thought they saw Read it at the end. Read the end of the passage. It says actually they were the ones becoming blind because though they physically saw, they were missing the point spiritually. Suffering can help you not miss the point spiritually. It can lead you to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that we suffer because we long for a better home. I pray that you would help us to suffer for you, Christ, so that other people can see that you are worthy, that you are good, that you are God. I pray that we would be able to suffer well as Christians. God, it's not fun. I don't love it. This isn't something that we desire or dream of. We don't grow up wanting to be a sufferer. But one day, God, you will eradicate suffering forever for those who have called on you because you already suffered for us, Jesus. Let us remember that. Let us see the beauty in that Christ. Let us worship you through that. God, I confess, I I don't even feel like I did a good job scratching the surface at this, God. And so I pray you and Holy Spirit keep working in our hearts this idea of suffering and how beautiful it is and how it can represent the beauties of God. Christ, I pray that you would show us what you went through. Holy Spirit, I pray you would work in our hearts so that we would be able to love you and know you and bless your name in rich ways. I wanna challenge you you who are praying with me, I want to challenge you on something real quick. This week, um, as you're thinking about suffering, as you're thinking about what, uh, what Christ did for you, I want you to pray something. Maybe even you pray it right now, okay? And I mean, it's a dangerous prayer, so don't pray it unless you mean it because God does answer these types of prayers, okay? Do what you would in my life that you may be glorified. That's what I want you to pray. And if you can't pray that, I want you to grow deeper in your relationship with God. I want you to think, why can't I pray that? Why do I want to hold my life as valuable or coveted? Why do I not realize there's something better for me in eternity? So figure out, wrestle with God. It's good to wrestle. I want you to ask questions. I want you to try to figure out who God is. But if you can pray, do what you would in my life for your glory. Let me suffer. Let me do what it takes that others may see and know Jesus. God, that's what I want. I want that in my life. My life means nothing to me anymore. It's 80 years and then it's gone, but one day I'll spend eternity with you. Let me spend these 80 years well. God, let us spend these 80 years well. God, we love you and I thank you. I praise things in your precious name. Amen.